Did you know that within a decade, women will hold $30 trillion in investable assets? Yet somehow, only 19% of women reported feeling confident in selecting investments that align with their long-term goals. Our friends at InvestHer are out to change that. InvestHer Con is the number one premier conference for women in real estate, and it's happening June 2nd through the 4th in Austin, Texas. InvestHerCon is not just another real estate conference. It's a transformational experience focused on real estate investing, business strategies, and self-care tactics, all designed to help women take control of their financial futures. Gain the knowledge and skills you need to grow your portfolio and build a sustainable business, all while connecting with over 500 women who are playing at the same level. To learn more and to get your tickets, visit InvestHerCon.com today and use the code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. That's InvestHer, H-E-R, Con.com, promo code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. Everybody says you can make lots of money with using other people's money. But you know how many hundreds, thousands of investors I've talked to who don't have access to other people's money? They're going through hard money lenders or banks. They're not really getting true private investors. So funding equals freedom. Welcome to the Best Ever Show, the world's longest running daily commercial real estate podcast. Our hosts interview commercial real estate experts every day to get you the best advice ever with none of the fluffy stuff. Hello, Best Ever listeners. Welcome to the Best Real Estate Investing Advice Ever Show. I'm Ash Patel and I'm with today's guest, Josh Cantwell. Josh is joining us from Cleveland, Ohio. He is the CEO of Freeland Ventures, where they own and operate multifamily investments. Josh's portfolio consists of over 3,000 multifamily units. Josh, thank you for joining us, and how are you today? Hey, Ash, I'm great. I'm fired up to be here. Thanks for having me on the show, and I'm excited to share with your people. Well, let's kick it off. Josh, can you give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and what you're focused on now? Sure. Look, I've been in real estate for 25 years. I've been an entrepreneur all my life. I've never had a boss. So I've been in real estate since 2001, full-time since 2004. My journey is very organic. I started in residential wholesaling and got into flips and then a fund. And then we started lending. And then I started funding apartments for other people. And then I started owning and operating apartments about six years ago. And when COVID hit, we decided to bring all of our operations and acquisitions home and really focus on buying buildings in Ohio. So I'm based in Cleveland. We have a pretty big portfolio in the Cleveland area. We're also focused on Columbus and Cincinnati because those are really great growth markets, but they're nearby. I believe in investing in your backyard as often as you can. So COVID forced us to come home about three years ago and really focus on Ohio. That's what we're doing today. We buy a lot of C-class buildings built in the 60s, 70s, and 80s in B-class areas. And we've hung our hat on construction. I own a construction company. Last year, we spent almost $7 million in CapEx. We turned over 550 units. So we're focused on those C-class assets that we can really focus on doing a great value-add construction program and bringing those up to more of a B-class asset and really bumping the rents. That's what we're up to, man. How do you find your properties? I think it's a combination of 
tried and true strategies, right? We've got great relationships with brokers, guys from Newmark and CBRE and Cushman and from Marcus and Millichap Colliers. We maintain a lot of great relationships with residential wholesalers. We actually love to buy smaller buildings. We have a lot of huge buildings, but we love to buy buildings that are also those 28-unit buildings and the 52-unit buildings and the 75-unit buildings that really have a lot of deferred maintenance. We get a lot of those from residential wholesalers that find a needle in a haystack, and then we'll buy those and often we'll fix those up and we'll stabilize them and sell them. So we don't really do any direct-to-seller marketing because brokers and wholesalers are spending so much time trying to build those relationships that often take years to formulate. So we let them do the heavy lifting and the relationship building. We hang our head on construction and we let our reputation get us those deals awarded to us. Are the returns higher in the smaller properties? When I say returns, I mean the cash on cash returns. Well, listen, I think your strategy is to own larger buildings. It makes sense to start with smaller ones to really do value add. I do think there's a bigger spread, Ash, in the difference between what a mom and pop seller is going to expect versus a very seasoned owner operator is going to expect the more seasoned guys are going to run the process, try to get the highest price they can. Mom and pop on a smaller building is going to be looking for an exit. If they get pinched on a balloon loan or they get pinched from cash flow, they're going to be looking to sell at probably a lower price per door, which leaves a bigger cash on cash return. So the answer, yes. And often the due diligence they provide may not be as comprehensive as a larger property. So you can get a discount on some of those DD items. Yeah. Look, the DD items, we're buying a smaller building. We don't put as much focus in. What we put our focus in is what the building can be after we execute our value add program and our construction program. I just bought a building for 1.1 million. It was 28 units, basically low 40s a door. But it's in an area where the rents are 950 to 1100 a month. The building was in receivership, basically foreclosure for commercial buildings. And we think that deal pencils out at about 100000 a door when it's done. So we didn't really care if we got shorted on the DD items because we knew we were going to do our own walkthroughs. We knew all the old leases weren't going to matter. We were going to kind of move everybody out. We were going to give everybody lease terminations anyway. And here we are 90 days later, we've turned 23 of the 28 units. So the building's highly vacant right now, but on purpose. So we're trying to turn the entire building in less than four months, which we're going to do. And then we have a big lease up event and we'll have a whole new tenant base. And within six months, that building will be worth about 2.8 million. We'll be into it for about 1.6. So those smaller buildings for sure, you're going to get shorted on some DD items, but I don't really put much stock in that anyway, because I'm looking at the end result of what it looks like when we're done. Josh, what kind of debt do your buyers typically hold? Are they hitting a wall where rates are going to readjust or do they typically have longer term debt? Are you talking about in the buildings that we buy? Correct. Well, look, we've done a really good job of securing long term debt especially over the last five years. And actually what we've done in a number of deals, Ash, is we've actually gotten bank financing. So we've actually done some recourse on a number of deals. Now, what did that allow us to do? Let's talk about that for a second. A lot of guys are like, you got to go perm or bridge because it's non-recourse. 
makes total sense. However, those middle bank loans where you could get fixed rate debt for seven years and there's no balloon, there's no floater, there's no interest rate cap, it's just fixed, it's on the balance sheet or it's fixed through a swap. What happened was when we secured those loans back in 2019, 2020, now we're actually in the money on the swap. So if we sold the building today or we refinanced it, we'd make a six to $800,000 profit on the swap, meaning the prepayment penalty actually is in our favor. So the counterparty risk that took the swap, they're in a six to $800,000 penalty. That money would come to us if we paid it off. So what we did, I think, really well and right pre-pandemic and right after the pandemic is actually be open to long-term fixed rate bank financing that was recourse. And look, we syndicated those deals. We put 25 to 30% down. So we just don't think there's a lot of risk there, even though it's recourse. Yeah, all of my loans are full recourse because I do non-residential commercial and there's no option for non-recourse. So I'm okay with that. Sure. Now on those loans, have you tried to negotiate one year interest only? Yeah, almost all the time because we do a construction component, a value-add component, almost every time the bank has given us at least 18 months, 24 months of interest only with a draw facility. That's the other reason why we like it is because we're paying interest on whatever we've used. And essentially, we got a two-year I.O. period with a two-year construction facility. Then after the construction facility burns off, then the I.O. period also burns off. And now we're into amortizing at around the third year, which we're comfortable with because within that two years, we're going to execute our value add program and our construction. We're going to bump the rents. And Josh, the beauty of that loan is your longer term debt, your seven year loan period is already fixed the day that you sign the loan papers. Is that right? That's yeah. right. We're fixed for five years and we don't have to worry about interest rate adjustments and those kind of things. And we're fortunate to be in the money on the swaps. We've got three loans with swaps like that. And right now those swaps are worth about $1.5 to $1.6 million to us if we pay them off. Yeah. And I think that's important for the best ever listeners to realize that there is an option with small and regional banks for multifamily or commercial financing. And you can lock in the longer term debt. You can still get interest only. Have you tried to negotiate out of the prepayment penalty? Yeah. In most cases, those prepays are usually three years or less. They haven't been really long-winded prepayment penalties. A lot of these banks are putting these loans on their balance sheet, so they want to keep these loans in play. So there's going to be a two- or three-year prepay. But frankly, we're going to be working through the construction facility at that two- to three years anyhow, so that prepayment penalty hasn't scared us. We don't have any deals where the prepayment's longer than four years. So if it takes us 36 months to 48 months to really restabilize the building and get to pro forma, we're okay with that because the likelihood of us paying them off early is small and the likelihood of us paying that prepayment penalty is small. So I have no problem with those. We've definitely tried to negotiate those down and that's worked. Banks seem to be a little bit flexible, not a ton, but some flexible on those prepays. Yeah. At times they will tell you that if you refinance with them, obviously they'll waive the prepayment penalty or if you sell the asset, they'll waive it. They just don't want a competing bank to take the loan. And that's when they that's enforce right. the prepay. So good. Why did you choose to bring in construction? 
I think there's a way to separate yourself from the herd. If you're a syndicator and you're buying buildings and everybody's doing one thing, which is they're buying in the path of progress, they're buying in the South, they're buying in the growth belt of America. We thought, look, we could fight over deals in Dallas and Phoenix and Houston. I own 700 units in Houston. We could do that. Or when COVID hit, we decided to bring it home because frankly, Ash, I had buildings where we were taking people out in body bags. I had one building where 35 people died from COVID. And so that scared us big time. So when we thought, hey, if we're going to focus on the Midwest, you're going to have some of these older assets, even in Columbus, Cincinnati, some of these growth markets in the Midwest. And we thought, where is the main risk in this business? The main risk to us is either bank risk, interest rate adjustment, which we've obviously seen, or it's contractor risk. So if we could take those two risks off the table by securing long-term fixed rate bank financing and owning and managing our own construction company, we would reduce and de-risk our business. We thought that was huge. So we found a guy we brought in with 35 years of commercial construction experience. We brought in infrastructure under him with accounts payable, accounts receivable, a director, an assistant of construction, carpenters, we brought all that in-house so we can control materials, supply chain, labor, how fast units get turned. And that's where we feel like a lot of other syndicators and operators are really hurting or falling on their face is contractor risk. And we've been able to de-risk our business quite a bit. So we thought that was huge. And we just, look, Ash, it's all about the people, right? You got to have a great guy running the construction company. We have a guy named Dave. He does an amazing job. We're very, very involved in the operation of our buildings. I secret shop our buildings once a week. So not only do we have great infrastructure, great people, but I'm also seeing a lot of this stuff with my own two eyes. Josh, that's incredible that you found somebody that can lead the construction team. Do you have to give them equity? How does that work? He's a six-figure guy. He makes a great salary. And then he also has quarterly benchmarks where he's eligible for a fairly significant bonus every quarter. And if we set those benchmarks at the beginning of each quarter, and if he hits those benchmarks, he's eligible for a bonus. And it's a five-figure bonus every quarter. So it's a fairly sizable chunk of money. But look, that's paid for out of the construction facility. We've baked in the salary into our construction budget. So we're not really paying for that, right? The deal is paying for that salary. It's part of the overall construction budget. And we prorate it across all of our different projects and assets. But he's a six-figure guy with benefits, with a retirement plan. We pay for his mileage, his cell phone, and then he gets a quarterly bonus. So we'll say, hey, this quarter, this project, we anticipate we're going to turn X number of units, plus maybe one of the garden-style apartments needs a new roof. And maybe there's a new signage or a seal and stripe of a driveway, whatever that might be. We say, this is the plan for this project this quarter. If you execute 100% of it, you get the full bonus. If you execute 80, 90% of it, you get 80 to 90% of the bonus. Every quarter he bonuses out, he gets a bonus. But three out of the four quarters a year, he's getting his full bonus because he's doing an amazing job. So yeah. that's worked for us and we have not had to give up equity. That's a great system. Do you recommend for the best ever listeners to follow suit and bring construction in-house? And if so, is there a tipping point with number of units when you should consider doing that? Yeah, great questions. I believe that 
property management is easier to outsource to a good third-party manager. That's more of a commodity that you can outsource. Now, I don't want to discount how important property managers are. They're incredibly important. But it's easier, I think, to find a good property management company. It's easier than finding the construction. So if you can outsource the property management, great. You got leasing, evictions, collections, marketing, all that stuff handled. Then you can really focus your attention on construction. So I would bring that in-house. That's what we've done. That's what I would recommend because you can de-risk your business a lot and you can control the cadence of your unit turns and the cadence of your business. That's been really important to us. So outsource the third-party management, bring in the construction. That's what we've done, and I would recommend doing that for sure. Does the construction crew report to the PM company, or do they always report to you? Yeah, they always report to us. The PM company, they're totally separate, and we don't want them to fight. Ash, we don't want them to fight, but we want them to have a fair amount of healthy friction, let's call it. Let's say we own a 300 unit, right? Let's take this one for example, 300 unit. And there's units that are coming off at least termination. We want our construction company to know the exact date that they're being vacated. And within 48 hours, that unit getting walked and a scope of work being created. Then it being assigned to either our in-house carpenters or to a subcontractor. Those unit turns take no more than three weeks, even if we're doing brand new kitchen, brand new bathroom, flooring, lighting, everything, three weeks or less. And then we want it to go back to the property management company to lease. So we want our asset management, and my partner Tyler does our asset management. So he sees what units are becoming vacant, and then he can trigger those unit walks within 48 hours. And Tyler actually walks the unit, creates the scope of work. Then he hands it off to construction. Construction knocks that out, whether it's in-house or with a third-party contractor. And then it gets passed back into service, back to the property management company. Now, obviously, they're responsible for leasing, and we want that unit filled within 30 days or less. So it's very important to have this firm handoff to go from one swim lane to the next so we know who clearly is responsible for it. And in that scenario, there's no gray area, Ash, of is it the property management responsibility? Is it construction? Is construction being managed by property management? No. In our business, they're completely separate. So there's a firm, full handoff from one group to the next. Josh, you are in Cleveland currently. You're looking to expand to Columbus and Cincinnati, but you own 700 units in Houston. How did that come about? Joint venture partnership. I own a 216 unit down in Lawton, Oklahoma with Georgia Brayu, who's got a pretty prolific social media following. We own about a thousand units outside of Atlanta. We own 700 units in Houston and about 1400 units in Cleveland. We love the Columbus market, but we don't own anything there yet. We love Cincinnati, but we don't own anything there yet. So the deals that we owner operate sponsor and operate in Cleveland, we do with our own construction company and our own third-party managers. The other deals were co-syndication, co-GP, where we were very involved in acquisition. We were very involved in underwriting. We were very involved in raising money. Some of those deals, we also sponsored the loans, but we have a partner that's the local operator. And what's keeping you from expanding to Columbus and Cincinnati? Man, just competition. 
they're growth markets. They're almost like Sunbelt markets. So every deal we've offered on, we've offered on about 18, 19 of them. The prices just went up to a point, Ash, where we were like, hey, we got to tap out. This is getting ridiculous. They're just way higher than what we could underwrite them at. Part of the challenge in Columbus in particular is understanding the upside. There's so much upside with the world's largest microchip factory going in from Intel. There's Google, Facebook, Amazon data centers. There's a Honda EV plant. There's Ohio State University. There's the government of Ohio. Columbus just has so much growth. It's hard to pencil. Nobody really knows how high it's going. So it's hard to say, Ash, where should we stop? What's the ceiling of where our offer should be? Because nobody really knows what the upside is. It's growing so much so fast that some of these guys just have really long money, really long horizons, and they're willing to pay a lot more than we are. I'm in Cincinnati and people are always like, are there any good deals out here? And this Midwest area that we're in is an absolute gold mine for cash flow. And when people understand yeah. that, they're blown away. But historically- Don't tell anybody, Ash. Let's well, just share Ohio, me no, and you. I, I get it. Historically, this has been an overlooked market and we've never had the appreciation that the coastal cities or the Sun Belt has had. But because of that, mm -hmm. we've never had the big dips when the economy is in a recession as well. So fairly stable market. Now, Cleveland has had its ups and downs, pretty severe downturns in the 2008 recession. Why are you bullish on Cleveland? Good question. So to your point about boom bust markets, I think the United States is firmly divided into two categories. You have the coastlines and the Sun Belt, places like Phoenix, parts of Florida that are boom bust. If you look at boom bust, what happened in 01, you look at what happened in 08, you look at what happened with COVID, you look at what's happening now, all these operators penciled these big rent increases. Well, if you look at the year-over-year -year rent increase in those boom bust markets, most of them are zero. Some of them are maybe two, 3%. A lot of them, including Phoenix, are negative. So that's a boom-bust market. So boom, 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 when money is inexpensive, that's what happened in 05 through 07. That's what happened in 2020 through 2022. Boom, bust. I don't want to invest there. I'm in this business for the long-term, Ash, like you are. So I want a cash flow stable market. To me, that's the Midwest. That's places like Louisville, Indianapolis, Cincinnati, Columbus, Cleveland, Pittsburgh, those types of areas. When you look back at the 2008 bust, there were the four Sunbelt markets that led all the foreclosures, plus Michigan because of the auto industry. Ohio was definitely hit, but it wasn't hit nearly as bad as those boom-bust markets. And I'm bullish on Ohio, not necessarily because of all the growth or Cleveland because of the economic growth. There just isn't a ton of economic growth. There's really stable two and a half to four and a half percent rent growth. But our strategy is to buy those C-class type of buildings that we can force the appreciation. We can force the value up through our value add construction improvements. That's why I'm bullish on it is because I live here. I can see my assets every day and I can manage them through our construction company. And then Cleveland's going to give us maybe three to three and a half percent rent growth over the long haul. 
I'd rather have the cash flow stable than boom bust. We'll get back to the show with first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. Deciding how to invest your capital is more challenging than ever. That's why it's never been more important to partner with a company with a solid track record and that has thrived through various economic cycles. Companies like BAM Capital. BAM Capital is a trusted multifamily syndicator that has delivered a historical average of over 35% IRR with an average hold period of three and a half years. BAM Capital has never missed a preferred payment, never lost an LP's investment, and never called capital past the subscription amount. How often are you on your at your properties? Every week. My routine is Monday, I take my kids to school, I go to the gym, and then I go right in the field, still sweaty from the gym. The residents don't know I'm the CEO. Even some of my property managers, now they know when I pull up. I pull up in my Escalade and I got my vanity license plate. So now they know the boss is on site. But I try to be as incognito as I can. Walk the property, walk the commons, walk the vacants. And I don't get to every property every week, but I'll move around. So I get to every property at least once a month. And that's why we've been such a strong operator and why we've grown our income. Look, this 220 unit that we're considering selling because we're in the money on the swap. I bought that in May of 2021, just a little over two years ago. The income was 135000 a month. We've been hyper-focused on operating the real estate, being on site, turning units. Last month, we collected 185000 of income. So we've grown the income by almost $50,000 a month, which is about 40% in less than two years. We bought that for $11.65 million. It right now is worth about $18.5 million based on a six cap. So that to me is the key. I think there's too many syndicators that fell in love with the money, fell in love with the acquisition, and are not as involved as they should be in operations. We make money when we buy, but we have to execute the plan. And I would encourage more operators and syndicators to be on site and see their properties way more often. They'll make a lot more money if they do that. Why? What do you accomplish when you're on site? Ash, you and I, we've talked to a lot of property managers in our day, and they don't always tell you everything that's going on. And sometimes the property manager or the regional manager, the area manager that you might be talking to, they haven't been on site. They haven't walked the building. I've got area managers that claim they walked the building. And I'm like, well, why is this common not being cleaned? Or why is this landscaping not being done? Or why is this sign not installed yet? You told me this was done. So, man, like you have to inspect what you expect. We've all heard that before, but you got to inspect what you expect. So if I expect my properties to really be operated really well and cash flowing really well and our residents to stay long-term, I got to inspect that. Not that I don't trust our property managers, but I want to verify what they're saying. I think it's critical. Yeah. And the reason I'm asking you these questions is when you finally find a property in Cincinnati or Indianapolis, it's a four-hour drive. What are you going to do? What systems are you going to put in place? Or do you still plan on going on site yourself? It's both. We're definitely going to still be going and visiting those properties a minimum of once a month. One of the things that we do now is we FaceTime with our property managers. So if they're not local, we make them FaceTime us through the building once a week. 
do a full walkthrough of the building from the commons to the laundries to the vacant units to the exteriors once a week. You could see a lot from a FaceTime video. You could tell them to stop and pause and look at certain things, the mulch, the air conditioning units, whatever you want to take a look at, the roofs. I just don't think that enough real estate investors set aside time to do that boring, recurring work. You can do it on FaceTime. You could do it through a video camera. So that'll be what we do. But I'll secret shop them. I'll show up unannounced, even if it's four hours away. And what does your vanity plate read? Freeland. <laughs> Our company's called Freeland Ventures. Oh, so the vanity it. page just says Freeland on it. Okay, Josh, you've mentioned a few times you're in the money on the swaps. Can you explain that? Sure. So when you get a bank loan, the lender, let's take a Midwest regional bank, they have the option to put that loan on their balance sheet, which means they fully fund the loan with their own money. That's actually their depositor's money. We all know that, but they fund it with their money. Then they leave it on their balance sheet and they're collecting the interest and it stays with the bank. Or they can what's called do a swap. A swap is essentially what's called a derivative. Many people remember back in the 2008-9 crisis that AIG did a bunch of credit default swaps. Remember that term? So credit default means they're going to swap the risk with someone else, that counterparty that's going to buy the risk. So what we did was a couple of lenders that focus on, instead of putting the loan on their balance sheet, they then will say, we're going to swap, which means they're going to sell a derivative. They're going to sell a swap against this loan. So somebody takes the risk that if the loan interest rate, let's say it's LIBOR, let's say it's the five-year treasury plus 225 BIPs, let's say that goes up, somebody else is responsible for that risk. If the rate goes down, then we are responsible for that risk in the form of a prepayment penalty. So somebody in a swap is responsible for the prepayment penalty. We, because we locked those interest rates at around 3.25%, we have another one at three and a half. Now the market rate for that loan is about six and three quarters. Now the counterparty that bought the swap that's bought on Wall Street. I don't even know who the counterparty is. It's bought on Wall Street. Somebody buys it. They now have a penalty because they own the risk. That penalty now is coming to us in the form of a prepayment penalty that's actually paid to us. So that's a swap. So when you go into a swap in today's market, let's say we bought a new property today with a swap. And let's say the rate, just to make it easy, is 7%. Well, my risk then is if rates go down to five, five and a half. Well, then I'm going to be responsible for the prepayment penalty on that new loan. That's the risk. Well, back then, these rates were so low, they're eventually going to have to go up. So I was totally comfortable doing a swap. And we did that. And now we're in the money. If we pay them off, if the loan burns off after five years or seven years or whatever the loan term is, and we don't sell it or refi it, then nobody pays the penalty. But then it's going to become a floater at that point. That might be LIBOR plus three and a half. Right now, that rate would be almost 9%, right? But I don't have to worry about that for three or four years from now. Josh, how long do you hold your properties? The goal is to hold them all forever. People get rich in real estate 
by holding real estate long term. The goal is to hold them for, but that's not really what ends up happening in the real world. I've done 20 syndications. We've bought 4,500 units. We've taken 10 deals full cycle, meaning either to a refi or a sale. And we've sold off six. So we pencil our deals, Ash, at a 42-month stabilization for the most part. This is a rule of thumb that we operate by. For each 100 units we own, it's going to take us one year to stabilize. So if we own 400-unit building, it's going to take us four years. To get through all the unit turns and all the capex and all the value-add improvements, take us about four years. So most of our deals will pencil in about 42 months, and then we either sell or refi at 42 months. If we refi, then the goal is hold it forever and just get the cash flow in perpetuity. But most likely, we're going to end up selling it around year eight. And you have investors on these deals, correct? Yep, you bet. What do you tell them is the hold period? Again, with our strategy of buying C-class buildings and B-class areas, the goal is to refi within 42 to 48 months and return all of their investor capital back to them. We're forcing the appreciation so hard through the construction, we fully expect to get a high enough valuation to refi them out. Now, if interest rates stayed this high for the long term, we're going to have, like most people, we'll have a debt service coverage issue where you can only get so much loan proceeds and that will constrain how much we can refi out. So the goal is really hold it through this high interest rate period and then refi in 2025 when the interest rates will hopefully be back down. But that's usually the case is refi around 42 to 48 months. Josh, you've had an amazing run in a pretty short amount of time. What's your secret to raising capital? Raising capital. Piece of cake. First of all, you got to have an offer that you know that your investors are going to buy in on. It starts with having a great offer. Number two, tremendous amount of what I call our brand syndication system. I have a brand. I push that out through shorts, reels, online, podcasts, posts, YouTube, and I point everything at our investor portal. So we have an online presence that drives leads to our investor portal. We put them on an autoresponder, and then they get access to my calendar through a Calendly link. And then I focus on building relationships with everybody, whether they're 506B or 506C. I don't care if they're accredited or not. I feel like you have to have a relationship with them. So I usually do three meetings or three appointments, and then I feel like I have a relationship with that investor, and they invest for the long haul. The other way to do it is manually. So there's the online way to do it through, again, through shorts, reels, podcasts, posts, things like that, driving traffic to a portal and a funnel. The second way is manually going to events, meeting people face-to-face. But you've got to put yourself out there. And when I raise money, Ash, I don't tell people I'm the CEO of Freeland Ventures. When people ask me what I do, I say, I raise capital for real estate. We buy distressed apartment buildings and we pay our investors a double-digit rate of return. Got it. And that gets everybody interested in like, oh, wait, say that again. How does that work? Instead of just saying I'm the CEO and we own 3,000 units, I say I raise capital for real estate. We buy distressed apartment buildings and we pay our investors a double-digit rate of return. And then people are like, ooh, I want to learn more about that. Josh, what's a mistake that you made in your rise in this industry and it was coupled with a hard lesson, something that was difficult to stomach? Look, man, I think co-syndication – can be a major pothole if you're not 
really, really clear on who the operator really is. I think over the last three or four years, a lot of people, and I made that mistake, there was a group that needed capital. There was a group that needed another sponsor. There was a group that needed something else. And we were told that this partner is going to be the operator. And that partner fell flat on their face. They sucked at operations. They were terrible at construction. And we didn't spend enough time really vetting that boots on the ground operator to see what was their track record in managing the real estate. What was their track record in managing the construction? We should have done a better job of that. Luckily, most of those deals have now been sold off and the market, because interest rates were so low, those deals are now gone. We made a profit. It wasn't as much profit as we should have made. But that's another reason, Ash, why we brought all of our deals back home and we decided to stop co-syndicating and co-sponsoring deals with other people because we knew we were one of the best operators. So that forced us to have some tough conversations with investors because maybe the pref return stopped being paid for a while or the returns weren't as good as we thought or the building got sold at a discount. Even though we still made a profit, it's got sold at less than what it should have because we trusted the partnership, but we didn't vet out who the real boots on the ground operator was. And that operator fell flat on their face. So that was one of the hard lessons we learned. Josh, what is your best real estate investing advice ever? Funding equals freedom. I'm not talking about funding with other people. I'm talking about if you really want to be free in this business, whether it's buying small apartment buildings, midsize, large, whether it's a single family rental portfolio, someone on your team needs to absolutely be full-time at raising capital. Everybody says you can make lots of money with using other people's money. But you know how many hundreds, thousands of investors I've talked to who don't have access to other people's money? They're going through hard money lenders or banks. They're not really getting true private investors. So funding equals freedom. Second thing, Ash, is you got to be daring. Look, I'm a pancreatic cancer survivor. And my surgeon performed an unbelievably complicated surgery the day that I was spared on the operating table. And my oncologist said, Josh... One of the only reasons why you're alive today is because your surgeon was a daring surgeon. And he tried things that nobody else had ever tried. He performed this crazy, wicked surgery on me, got the cancer out. It's a whole nother story to tell you that. All right, Josh, you ready for the best ever lightning round? You bet. All right, what's the best ever book you recently read? Who Not How by Dan Sullivan. And Josh, what's the best ever way you like to give back? Look, man, I love to coach. I love to coach young kids. I think a lot of kids are misled. Parents are too busy. So coaching young kids and helping them build their confidence. And Josh, how can the best ever listeners reach out to you? Easiest way we built a page where people can engage with us. It's called joshcantwell.page. Everything about me, our funding opportunities, everything that we do is available there at joshcantwell.page. Awesome, Josh. Thank you for your time today, sharing your story with us. would love to see you expand to Columbus and where I live currently in Cincinnati. So keep in touch with us and thank you again for your time. Thanks a lot, Ash, for having me on. Awesome. Best ever listeners. Thank you so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star review. Share this podcast with someone you think can benefit from it. Also follow, subscribe, and have a best ever day. Hi, best ever listeners. Joe Fairless here again. And one last thing before you go, would you like to receive a short weekly email with proven tips from experienced investors, free tools and resources, and a roundup of the week's most relevant news and best ever content? Well, if so... 
Join the community of nearly 15,000 commercial real estate passive and active investors who receive the best ever newsletter. Just go to bestevercre.com forward slash access and you'll get the very next one. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, thank you for listening and have a best ever day.